0: But this morning, um, we're going to be discussing um, the Lord's Supper. Uh, We're going to be looking primarily at section 30, um, but to begin with, we're going to be looking at section, the second part of 28, 28 28.2. Last week, Adam covered Um, 28.1, it referred more to the baptism aspect of the ordinances. Uh, The second section in 28 refers um, to the Lord's Supper. Really to both, um, but um, it's included in this section that I'm teaching. So um, 28.2 says, uh, These holy appointments are to be administered only by those who are qualified and called to administer them according to the commission of Christ. So there's really two questions we kind of need to answer um, for ourselves as a body and what this means for us. Uh, I think the first question is, who can baptize and who can present the Lord's Supper? Um, That's the first question we need to answer, and the normative would be church leadership. That would be our stance um, as elders and deacons. The the ones set apart for that task would be the one that would do that. Um, But I would also say that I think there are and can be some exceptions to that. Um, For instance, in the case of somebody maybe wanting to baptize their child. In that case, um, it would just need to be approved by the church and by the leadership as a whole that that person understands both the person being baptized and the person doing the baptizing and along with the Lord's Supper, the same thing, what the ordinance means and what's happening in that. Um, Having a a complete and perfect understanding that it's it's not this, that it is that um, that's taking place. Um, And the second thing, the second question in regards to this that I think we need to answer is what context these things happen, these ordinances happen, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, what context they happen in. And that's in the context of the local church as a body. Um, it's not something that happens outside the church, but it's happening something as a group, as a body of believers we do together. <clears throat> they're church ordinances, they're not believers' ordinances. Um, so they should be done in the context of an established body. That's why we waited to begin taking the Lord's Supper, and that's why we waited to baptize Gracie. Is because we waited until we were a body, until we were together. We were one. We weren't individuals, we were together. So that's does anybody have any questions about twenty eight point two? Or any statements? Any clarifications? Okay. So that takes care of 28.2. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to turn over to section 30 now. Um, there's eight sections in this uh, this um, part about the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> the, the, the whole of it, um, by the way, I've, a lot of what I'm saying today is not my own thoughts. It's my thoughts from study or the thoughts of the study of many men smarter than I am. Um, that I've been studying to get ready for this. Um, And one of those uh, books that I was studying was helpful They kind of broke it up into four sections like this. Um, This is a little bit different than a lot of the other sections we've studied, and that's why I'm bringing this up. This first section kind of gives us what it is, what the Lord's Supper is. But we've got sections 2 through 6 here that really give us an idea or tell us what it is not. There's, a, there's, there's a, a big portion of the entire section on the Lord's Supper that is explaining what it isn't. And then the last two sections here kind of talk about some benefits of worthy reception and some liabilities of unworthy reception. <laughs> So we want to look at this first section, section 30.1, and we want to talk about what it is. Could somebody read section 30.1 for me? There's really three main parts to this. I've got a lot of three main, four mains. It helped me to really group these and list these together, and I'm hoping that it's helpful to you um, when trying to read these things, trying to pick out the main parts of this so that we can understand what's trying to be said. Um, The first point that I wanted to bring out in this first section is that there is a time in which and a person by whom the Lord's Supper was instituted. It's very clear. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul all describe the time and the manner in which the Lord instituted the Supper, and they would all describe it the same way. <clears throat> There's not any debate about that. It was during the evening meal when they were observing Passover, and it was the night he was betrayed by Judas. It's like Patrick was describing up here when we were at the table. Judas had left to betray the Lord Jesus, and he instituted the very first Lord's Supper with the disciples. That's the first thing, that there's a time and a person, very specifically, where this is done. Um, the second main thing that I think that we need to make sure we cover in talking about what it is... <coughs> sorry. Is that there is a perpetual obligation to keep taking the Lord's Supper until he returns. And I think there's four reasons why we should believe this. The confession gives us. The first one is that the words of the, the words of the institution, this do in remembrance of me. Luke twenty-two, nineteen says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Several other examples in Scripture where that phrase is given, this do in remembrance of me. The second reason to believe that this is so is because of the apostles' examples of doing it in the Scriptures. So in Acts 2.42 it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the apostles themselves did it in Scripture. The apostles frequently wrote about it, like I said, implying that it should be perpetual, that it should continue until the Lord comes again. And then finally, just the historical aspect. From the beginning of the church, this is how it's happened. It's, it's been perpetual. It happens constantly. They've been taking the Lord's Supper since the beginning of the Christian church. Uh, the, third asper, the third main point in this first section, so the first one was the time and person, Jesus Christ Institute. The second one was the perpetual obligation to keep taking it. And the third thing is the design and the effect of the Lord's Supper. And there's, I've kind of got another list here to help us pick out the main things that we need to <clears throat> see. The first one is that it's a commemoration, it's a remembrance. There's a design. It's, these things are in it. Um, like I said, it's a commemoration, it's a remembrance of the death of Christ. That's what we're doing. We're remembering the death of Christ. Christ and Paul both declare this. In Matthew 26 and 1 Corinthians 11 and earlier in Luke 22:19. Matthew twenty six says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, This take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks to them, saying, Drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the for the for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then the first Corinthians eleven twenty six says For as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a commemoration. It's a remembrance. It's also a seal of the gospel covenant, wherein all the benefits of the new covenant are signed, signified, and sealed and applied to all believers. So when we take the supper... Christ is ratifying his promise to us to save us on the condition of faith and to endow us with all of the benefits of redemption he promised to us in the scriptures. In taking the supper, we are binding ourselves to Christ to complete self-consecration and to all that is involved in the requirements of the gospel. We're saying we're bound to the gospel and all of its requirements. And the important part about that is it's not as we understand those requirements of the gospel. It's as how Christ understands. When Adam talked about his section on oaths and vows, the understanding of the oath and vow and and, and how that is enacted and how it is obeyed is based on the person who gives the oath and the vow, who who is in charge of it. So it's not based on how we understand the gospel, and and it's based on how Christ er, gives us the gospel. So it's a commemoration, it's a remembrance, it's a seal. The second thing, it's a badge of Christian profession, the third thing. It's a mark of allegiance of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Think about the US Armed Forces. What is their badge that aligns them all as one? What is the badge of the armed forces, all of them?
1: Constitution.
0: Yes. What is something that they wear? Oh, you have a glass
2: flag.
0: The flag. The United States flag. So when anybody sees somebody in uniform, they see that flag, they know exactly who they belong to. There's no question. It's a badge for the believer. Fourthly, it signifies and affects our communion with Christ. Uh, The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 170, is this. How do those who worthily participate in the Lord's Supper feed on the body and blood of Christ in it? The answer is, the body and blood of Christ are not bodily or physically present in, with, or under the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper, and yet are spiritually present to the faith of the receiver, no less truly and really than the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Therefore, those who worthily participate in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper feed on the body and blood of Christ in it. Not in a bodily or physically manner, but in a spiritual manner. But nevertheless, truly and really, while by faith they receive and apply to themselves Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. <clears throat> so, two important things, and I'm going to I'm going to hit on these several times. Um, but the bread represents His flesh. The wine represents his blood, But they are not His flesh, and they are not His blood. And we receive that physical symbol spiritually. <clears throat> it's not physically. We're not physically receiving the body and blood of Christ. And it's symbolized by our faith, the way we receive it. So we've got those first four. In remembrance, it's a seal, it's a badge, it signifies. And then lastly, it proclaims. <clears throat> It is designed to proclaim and to effect the mutual communion of believers with each other, individual to individual, as a body <clears throat> from person to person, and we all, all are all in communion with the head of the church, Christ. So it's <clears throat> it's showing us our union with each other and our union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of the one bread. So we are one body under one head, all partaking of one bread. Any questions, thoughts, concerns? On their own by themselves, no. And I would say because it's instituted as a church ordinance. Um, I'll talk about how they can, at least how, let's let's say um, somebody in our church is bedridden or unable to attend, but they are still members of our church. Um, I was going to mention this later, but I can... Uh, mention now, basically we would the way we would treat that is we would take a group of us and go be with them and observe the lord 's Supper in the same way that we would observe it here so they could be part of the body and that 's one one thing that 's going to be addressed in the sections two through six what it isn 't um, Roman Catholics will people who are not at the church to observe the Eucharist will send the little wafers, two people in their homes to take separately, and we would stand against that. Woody?
1: Uh, there's also on your point number five there, there's the aspect that this is one of the only two uh, uh, c- ceremonial uh, forms of Christianity, the baptism and Lord's Supper. And that, therefore, one of the things about that ceremony is that we are visually proclaiming the death, the body, the death and burial and resurrection in Christ in these two ordinances. Uh, there, that's a ceremonial thing, but it's an actual proclamation that as we are baptized and as we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the death and burial and resurrection.
0: Yes, and yes, absolutely. Yeah, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six: for as af- often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Any other questions, comments? Okay. Well, let's look at um, section 30. Um, If somebody, if like five of you could just read two, three, four, five, and six. I know that's a lot, but let's just, I'm not going to hit these individually. I've just got about five or six things I want to say about all of these sections, because like I said, basically when when they wrote the confession, they were, they're speaking against some Roman Catholic and ritualistic things that we want to hit, um, so I'm just going to have five of you read those sections. So if somebody could start off with two and go all the way through, and six is the last one we read.
3: In this ordinance, Christ nor is any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin, of the living or the dead. It is only a memorial of the offering Christ made up of himself on the cross once for all. It is also a spiritual offering of the highest possible praise to God for that sacrifice. Thus, the Roman Catholic sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is utterly detestable, and attracts from Christ's own sacrifice,
1: which is the only propitiation for all the sins of the elect. In this ordinance, the Lord Jesus has appointed his ministers to pray and to bless the elements of bread and wine, and in this way to set them apart from a common to a holy use. They are to take and break the bread, take the cup, and give both to the communicants while also participating themselves. Denying the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, lifting them up or carrying them around for adoration, or reserving them for some pretended pretended religious use, are all contrary to the nature of this ordinance and to the institution of Christ. The outward elements in this ordinance, duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ, have such relation to Him crucified as that truly, although in terms used figuratively, they are sometimes called by the names. Of things they represent. And so when the body and blood of Christ, albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly only bread and wine as they were before.
0: Okay, that's a big word, isn't it? Transubstantiation. Good job, buddy. Alright, so instead of picking these apart, i um, kind of relying on condensing a lot of the things that I studied into really five main points that I wanted to cover um, that are kind of negative aspects of what the Confession is trying to speak against. Um, what it isn't, what the what the Lord's Supper is not, um, and the reason they do this is because they're speaking out against, like I said, some Roman Catholic ideas um, in the Reformation that they did not like, uh, or not that they didn't like it, they thought were unbiblical, and some ritualistic errors that the church um, practiced at that time. So instead of making True doctrinal statements, like most of our sections throughout the Confession is done, we're kind of making some negative comments about the ways that it should not be done. just want to be clear we're, we're all on the same page on that. Um, so in these five sections, there's really five main errors addressed. Um, the first one is the doctrine of that big word, transubstantiation. Um, this doctrine teaches that the change of the entire substance of the bread and the wine changes into the literal body and the literal blood of Christ. They carry with them when they change the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Christ when they are changed. And we want to say, in opposition to that, that it's literally bread, literally wine, that carries a spiritual benefit to it. Uh, The second main error in these sections is about the Mass. So the sacrifice of the Mass is not a remembrance like like we're saying the Lord's Supper is. It's a continual bloodless sacrifice of Christ for the remissions of sins. It's It's a continual sacrifice for the atonement of sin over and over and over again. The third thing that we want to say is wrong we want to speak against is this idea of worshiping the elements and reserving those elements um, for only certain parts of the congregation. And I'll explain that a little bit more later later. Um, The fourth thing is the denying of the cup, the blood, the juice, the wine, denying of the cup in general to the laity. Roman Catholics do not usually take the cup. It's usually just the bread. And the reason for that is if the bread is changed into the literal body of Christ and a piece of that crumbles onto the floor, we've got a problem. That's the holy divine body of Christ that's just been dropped on the floor. Um, same with the cup. Uh, they don't want anybody in the congregation to spill the blood of Christ on the floor. They don't. It's divine. It's it's literally the blood of Christ in their, in their thinking, in their doctrine. So the way they kind of get around the laity not taking the cup is... Like I said, we understand that in the bread, the whole body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ is bound up in that crumbless wafer that they use when they take the Eucharist, when they take the Lord's Supper. So we would obviously stand against all the members of the church not being able to take the cup. The only one that takes the cup is the priest. And he takes it by himself. Which is the last and fifth error would be that the priest takes communion privately, that he takes it alone. That um, he takes the cup himself only. And then this idea that, that Brandon brought up about if people are not in the congregation at the moment that they participate in the Eucharist, that they will send the elements to those people to just take them at home. Um, since they believe that the usefulness of the element is the physical body itself, and that all of the things that they need are bound up in that bread, they can send that in their mind to somebody in their home and partake in it, and they'll receive all the same benefits that they do at home as they would at church, taking it as a body. So that's why they view those things in that way. And like I said to Brandon, the correct exception in our context, uh, as far as the 1689 is concerned, and we as a church are concerned, and the scriptures are concerned, is if somebody is homebound, unable to walk, unable to move, bound in a bed at a hospital, unable to come, and they wish to take it, a body of us would go, um, be with them, take it as a body of Christ with them. Any questions about the negative aspect of what they're speaking out against, why we understand those things. Any comments? Concerns? Uh,
2: Maybe just to shed a little bit of light. So, regarding the elements being worshipped, so the Roman Catholics actually do have what they call a period of adoration. So they actually, um, they have often in, well, typically in any Roman Catholic church building, they will have what they call a sanctuary of adoration. It's a small room, where they literally come in and worship the elements. So, so this is something that happens all the time in a Catholic church. And you have some of this addressed in 30, uh, paragraph 6 here, possible not only to Scripture but also to common sense and reason. Uh, they do worship the elements, which of course is a problem. The other uh, really openly unreasonable aspect of transubstantiation is the simple fact of the matter is, where is Jesus now? Where is Jesus in the flesh now? He's in heaven. He's not on the table. Yeah. Right? His blood isn't in a cup. It's in his body. So it, it, it sounds sort of oddly a little bit humorous, but the reality is that's an important idea, right? That Jesus Jesus is present in the flesh, in heaven. Yeah. So he can't be present in the flesh, in a piece of bread, or or in the cup with blood. Okay. Yeah.
3: okay. I have a couple of points that I'd like to make on this that maybe should be made clear: is uh, this ordinance is um, not for a remission of sin. It does nothing. Yes. Inherently, directly for your sin, it doesn't. You know. Uh, keep you from judgment other than the prospect of doing it in an unworthy manner. That, you know, this is a, a profession of your faith. Yeah. And that as the elements have been prayed over, uh, they are set apart for a holy purpose. That's why when we're done with it, we're done with them now. Put them on the table for supper or breakfast.
0: Yeah, and nowhere here is it a remission of sin. Is there any atonement made? These are all remembrances, symbols, badges, seals, spiritual aspects that cause us to to think on all these things. A few positive comments, since there was a lot of negativity in all those sections speaking out against what these are. Um... Like I've said before, and I've told you I was going to repeat this, and we just repeated it again, but they're, they are real elements. It's, it's real bread and it's real juice. Um, and they remain as they are physically. There's no change um, that happens. Um, and the other thing is that while we've talked about some negative actions, I wanted to just take a second here and talk about some some positive um, aspects of what are the true and essential Actions. Um, so the first one that I would point out is the consecration of the meal every Sunday. Um, the repetition of the words of Christ during that he used during the Last Supper. Um, repeating what he has said, not what we have to say about it. Um, the prayer that we have before we partake together. Um, A prayer of divine blessing upon the worshipers in taking the ordinance. And a prayer to set apart the elements from the common use, as Brandon said, to a holy use. With spiritual benefit, not physical benefit. Um, the, The second thing I would point out is it's the breaking of one loaf of bread. Um, as Christ did. Uh, it's symbolic of Christ's one body being broken for all of us. We are, we are breaking it in the presence of all of us. It's one Christ, one cross, one body, one bread, feeding all of us as one. And then the third thing would be the distribution and the reception of the elements. Um, these consecrated elements, as we said to all of the eligible recipients of those elements as defined in Scripture, meaning believers in Christ who have come to Him in faith, who have been redeemed, who are not also in any known sin in their lives. So that's how we would define a worthy recipient as we do every Sunday. So any questions about that? They were they were celebrating Passover. Yeah, they were having a meal together.
3: Um, don't.
0: Uh,
2: there, there is a this sort of separateness to it that likely yeah. that's the accentuation of. I mean, so what you do see in the scriptures, in the Gospels, is this you know institution of the supper. There's a transition from. Uh, in the whole Old Testament to the New Testament, from the physical to the spiritual, you've got physical Israel, you've got the ultimate consummation of physical Israel, and spiritual Israel. Not all Israel is Israel, as we mentioned. I'm not trying to be funny, but the idea there is that Israel is really defined spiritually, not physically. The same is true in the transition from the Passover to the Lord's Supper. There's a physical presence, we affirm that, but it, excuse me, a spiritual presence. We affirm that no longer, this physical presence in the Passover. So, I mean, we're persuaded the regulative principle aspects of it are that it is a separate period. And there are certainly a number of uh, uh, groups that would, that would express their understanding of the regulative principle in a different way. As a matter of fact, there are some people, I don't know if this is still true, but the AME Church actually only does the Lord's Supper in the afternoon that's one of the reasons is because it's a supper uh, and so that may seem a little odd but so they're persuaded that it, it's something that isn't in the morning because it's simply it's description so that's an expression of of their understanding of the way that it was done historically that we're we're not persuaded is you know is necessary does that make sense so if they would want to do it in conjunction with a meal I mean I don't I don't know that that would there doesn't appear to be something in scripture that would prevent or that would indicate that that was, you know, a problem uh, that I'm aware of.
0: But not mandated necessarily either. Yeah. In the Corinthians
1: were Paul addressed that when he says some people are coming and getting drunk and you're eating the whole meal and others aren't eating enough. And so that's kind of a... mm-hmm.
2: yeah you do see the context of a regular meal there. And there was a there was also like Lynn's saying, a distinction between the regular meal and the Lord's Supper. Will
3: there be any distinction between putting it apart from a common use to a holy use? Or are you trying to keep them separate?
2: Yeah, well I think that um, I think that what you have in the institution, particularly like the Matthew passage and the Luke passage, is you do have this the elements are prayed over it is a separate thing. We're not we're not calling Beef stew, you know, is something that is supposed to represent the bread, um, or iced tea to represent. I mean that. Uh, so there is this, you know. I, I think there's a certain the word consecration here. That you know, I think that that sense is appropriate. What you're what you're saying. Otherwise, it's, it's kind of a mockery,
1: in a sense. We're, we, we diminish, I think, the, the aspects of it. Well, we also see a redemptive historical aspect in our sub-Brandon baptism that you don't see in a regular meal. And so this has a very special uh, relationship within the organization of the church of the revelation of Christ and what He has done for us and in us right now, so... Continual action. It's not. This is not something that has already been accomplished. This is something that's going to continue on into the end of of age. Good. I had a question on uh, similar
2: other aspects. We're kind of talking about the elements and and procedure. On a a flip side, in the First Corinthians 11, uh, 27, 28, about examine yourself. How far do we need to zoom in? Like. Because if I think about, you know, how many times I've yelled at my kids over the last week or something, you know, I'm not really, you know, where would you say, oh, you know, how far do you need to zoom in? Or like I, you know, was uh, you know, angry with a coworker or something. I haven't had a chance to ask his forgiveness yet. You know, I need to not partake. You know, how how far do you zoom down in? So.
0: I would say that the way most most of the people I've know or have read to understand is the idea is known sin so it's not i mean we all sin I mean, we are this is a sinner's table as patrick says every week i mean we're all we're all coming sinners um, but we're redeemed sinners the idea is that you're living knowingly in sin in a specific way um, so living with a a person who's not your spouse, you know. I mean, you know the Scriptures address that directly. You know, you should not, you know, so does that... It
2: also, also be like an end target of I am trusting in the Lord Jesus uh, to cover my sin. I may not have had a chance to like reconcile everything up to that point, but that is my hope. Uh,
0: because, uh, some of it too. I would say and I guess you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I would say if you if you know that you've sinned against your brother, I mean, I think the Scripture is pretty clear on that, and you know you need to go repent of that to your brother, then no, you should not take. Um, but it's this idea of known sin, um, not the unknown. That...
2: Yeah, I think... There, There is certainly this, and it is a self-examination. I mean, there are, mm-hmm. but there are other aspects. Some of it is a, a church exam. In other words, you wouldn't take the supper if you were under discipline. That's one of the aspects of church discipline is that you're, you're not allowed to eat with us if you're in unreconciled sin. And so that's an important aspect of discipline. But I think, um, so I think part of it is, have you done all you can do to the point of the supper, of the physical aspect of the supper. But it also is designed as a constraint. In other words, I'm going to take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. I want to take the supper every Sunday. Therefore, it is purposeful of the Lord that we we allow that to sort of counterbalance an inclination to not really lean into holiness. You know, that is one of the purposes of of even a weekly supper, this idea that look, I can in good conscience take the supper. I want to take the supper, therefore I need to straighten up, you know. And uh, and that that is an element of the of of it that I think is, is important.
0: Yeah. Encourage us to be quick repenters. Yeah. Not yeah, and big, not persist in sin. Quick repenters, yeah, I like yeah. That. Any other questions before I move on to the last two sections? All right. Somebody read 30.7 and 30.8. And I'll say a few things about these and then we'll be done.
3: Worthy recipients who outwardly partake of visible elements of this ordinance also by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. All ignorant and ungodly people are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ unworthy of the Lord's Table. As long as they remain in this condition, they cannot partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted to the Lord's Table without committing a great sin against Christ. All those who receive the Supper unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment on themselves."
0: So the first little bit there, uh, the first section was kind of what it is, sections 2 through 6, what it isn't. These last two sections kind of give us some benefits and some liabilities of taking the Lord's Supper in either a worthy or an unworthy manner. Um, these last two sections are kind of teaching the Reformed doctrinal stance on the relationship between the Lord's Supper and the grace that's signified in it and the differences between the Roman Catholic and the Reformed Uh, positions there. They are explaining, these last two sections are kind of explaining the nature of the presence of Christ in the ordinance like we've been talking about and also the sense in which the person is participating in it is said to feed on the body and blood of Christ. What is that? Is it the actual body and blood of Christ or is it not? Um, And we've discussed that as well. So kind of four, four main things I want to point out that kind of encompass these last two sections. I'll repeat it again. Uh, the bread and the wine. The bread is always bread. The wine is always wine. They don't change. They do represent by divine decree the flesh and the blood of one perfect Redeemer and offer for the sacrifice of sin for all, man- for, for all of His elect, for all of eternity. One sacrifice for all mankind. Um, the relationship between the bread and the wine and the body and the blood is purely representative. I'm, I'm, I know I'm hammering that, but they do too. <laughs> so um, the second thing the second thing I want to point out, um, again, the body and blood are only there spiritually, not physically. Um, the spiritual benefits of the sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ on the cross are made present and conveyed through the ordinance to the worthy partaker by the power of the Holy Spirit, who uses the ordinance as his instrument according to a sovereign will. So it's purely a spiritual thing that happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, The third thing, when it says in the scriptures that believers receive and feed upon the body and blood of Christ, it's meant that they're receiving the benefits of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, not by their mouths, but through faith. It's not something that's happening here. It's happening by faith. Um, Feeding on the body and blood is purely spiritual, being accomplished, like I said, through the Holy Spirit, through the ordinance, and through faith. So then it brings up this aspect, if the believer takes the supper, we talked about this, in an unworthy way, while in known sin, he eats and drinks in sin. So he's proclaiming the lie that he's in union with Christ when he does that. He's in, he's in disunion with Christ, and when he's partaking of the Lord's Supper, he's saying he's in union with Christ. So he's, he's, taking, he's proclaiming a lie. Um, I think it's important that we read this. Um, I don't know if we have any time to talk about it, but taking the Supper in this manner, as I've just described, has detrimental consequences. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine through 30 says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It's a serious thing. We need to approach it in a serious way. Uh, a moment ago I mentioned that taking the supper is purely spiritual in its benefits. That means that an unbeliever can never truly take the supper because he can't experience those spiritual benefits. He only takes it physically. The unbeliever can take that outward sign, the bread and the wine, but will completely fail to receive any spiritual benefit from it in his soul. If the unbeliever does take the outward sign, it only increases, as the confession says, his outward condemnation and further hardens his heart. So therefore, the person who is an unbeliever, a known unbeliever, either because of godlessness or by ignorance, it says, should be prevented both for their sake and for the church's sake from taking the supper until they're able to make a credible profession of faith. And then the fourth point I just wanted to draw out from these two sections is that since the body and blood of Christ are received purely in a spiritual way, by the Holy Spirit's work, it is the case that a believer can also feed on the body and blood of Christ at other times without the use of this ordinance, by, me, and by other means of grace, such as prayer, study of God's word. We can have the same spiritual benefits that we experience here through the study of his word and through prayer. It's not the only place that we can experience union with Christ. It's just where we proclaim union with Christ as a body together. Any other thoughts, concerns, comments, questions? Okay. All right. Well, let's pray then.